0: of common sense investing have been helping their clients and listeners make sense of the markets for nearly three decades. Using a conservative, diversified, value-oriented approach to investing, they strive to make you a better educated, well-informed investor. And now here's your host, Eric Whiteman. Mark reported on more than a 4% gain last week, taking back about two-thirds of the more than 6% loss we suffered in May, which is great, but the market is still about where it was eight months ago. No doubt the ongoing trade battles have been taking its toll. Looking back, last week's jobs report was a bit disappointing, but unemployment is still hanging around 3.6%, which is a 50-year low. We have some weakness in the retail sector. Yes, apparently we are shopping less at malls and more online. And we've had some weakness in the manufacturing sector, but that's being offset by an increase in jobs in the construction, hospitality, and service sectors. Adding it all up, it's pretty clear the economy has been slowing. With all this gloomy economic stuff at hand, the futures market has been busy pricing in interest rate cuts of about 75 basis points, or three quarters of a percent, over the next year or so. That's right. The market is expecting the Fed to cut rates soon, like hurry up, you're late to the party soon. Last week, the Fed jefe Jerome Powell said the central bank was prepared to act to sustain the economic expansion if the president's stance on trade weaken the economy any further. That's the biggest uncertainty we face right now. Trade. Now, the chairman didn't say that they were going to lower interest rates, only that they would act if necessary. And that begs the question, do we need rate cuts now? And what happens if we don't get them? Let me play the devil's advocate here to the market's current position. Do we need an interest rate cut? Well, if interest rates were well above the neutral rate, I think you'd be inclined to agree with the markets and say that, yes, a rate cut is needed. The neutral rate is where interest rates are neither restrictive nor accommodative. You know, not too hot, not too cold. What's the neutral rate? Well, that's a matter for debate too. But just for the sake of today's argument, let's just say that they're pretty darn close to it right now. If it was too tight, you wouldn't see things like mortgage purchase applications at new cyclical highs, or you wouldn't see the stocks of the home builders in an upward trend. Just look at Dr. Horton since the December lows. Historically, the housing sector is the most sensitive to monetary policy, and that's seemingly confirmed by the corporate sector. Yes, capital spending has weakened, but it's still at an elevated level. Banks are easing credit standards for commercial and industrial loans. You put it all together, or I put it all together, and being the devil's advocate here, I'm inclined to believe that Monetary policy is roughly neutral. Our central bank has what they call a dual mandate maximum employment and stable prices, or low inflation to you and me. So, last I checked, the unemployment rate was 3.6%, or as I said earlier, at a 50 year low. So, I think we can check that box. What about stable prices or low inflation? Inflation has been stable for at least the last 20 years. Right now it's at about 2%. So I think we can check that box too. If you think monetary policy is roughly neutral and the Fed has employment and prices under control, why would we be expecting a rate cut now? Well, you say it's because of the trade war. If you don't have a trade war, then do we need rate cuts? That's the irritant that's been added to the mix the fear of a full-fledged trade war is affecting the global economy. Just the uncertainty makes business leaders want to pull back on their capital spending. And when you start cutting spending, that affects all kinds of other things like manufacturing, exports, all sorts of things. In the early innings, I suspect it's probably not going to hurt Main Street America all that much. The reality is imports of consumer goods from China Only make up 2% of total household spending. And you have wages growing that sort of offset that. That's not to say that it can't get worse. Now, for China, well, they run their shop a bit differently than we run ours. They have a number of levers they can pull to support their economy. So, oddly enough, in the short term, it may be bad for China. But after a few months of them stimulating their economy, global growth could actually pick up. So you can make up your mind on whether we, whether or not we need a rate cut, but the market is expecting it. If we don't get one this month, the market may be patient. If we don't get one in July, well, as my grandfather used to say, they'll be hell to pay. The market could sell off and force the Fed to cut rates. Who knows where the market goes from here in the short term? That's anyone's guess. But you do want to make sure that you're prepared. And one of the best ways to do it is by making sure you have a well allocated portfolio. If you need some help, give us a call. I'll be happy to give you my two cents and see if we might be able to help you. The number is 301 770 5234. Once again, it's 301 770 5234. Or you can email us at podcast, which is plural, podcast at xmlfg.com. To me, having a well uh, well allocated portfolio means having a good bit of the overall portfolio in what I call core holdings names like Berkshire Hathaway Pepsi uh, Johnson and Johnson which I had a question on and I'll get to that in a second those are high quality businesses that should do well in most environments those businesses are so good that they rarely go on sale you usually have to pay up to own them And that's why I'm willing to buy a little bit at almost any time because my intent is to own them forever. And if my holding period is forever, it's probably not going to make a huge difference if I bought the stock today at 100 or 110. It will make a difference in my holding if my holding period is much shorter. Therefore, I have less time to compound. The core holdings are the businesses that aren't very cyclical, meaning they don't have those big swings, those boom and bust cycles. If the economy takes a turn for the worst and things start to get a little tighter, chances are people are still going to have a Diet Pepsi with their lunch. They're still going to pay their car insurance, and they're still going to use Band-Aids when they cut themselves. They might cut back on the double soy lattes, Or put off buying a newer, bigger home or a fancier car. Now, one of my core holdings has been Johnson and Johnson, and I had someone ask me about their exposure to uh, opioids, and that's probably because the first court case started a couple of weeks ago in Oklahoma. And of course, I'm not a lawyer, so this is just a guess. You've already seen Purdue, who's the top marketer in the state of Oklahoma settle for $270 million. You also saw Teva settle their court case for $85 million. But Johnson & Johnson has decided to go to court. I'm sure it's a very complicated case, but Johnson & Johnson has argued that their medications have amounted to less than 1% of the prescriptions written nationally and noted that in Oklahoma, there's been no documented cases of addiction or death caused by misrepresentation of its product. And Oklahoma will probably argue that the drug makers and distributors are broadly responsible for a public health calamity tied to opioid painkillers. I have no idea what the outcome is going to be, but what I do know is that Johnson & Johnson has a fortress-like balance sheet. They generate north of $9 billion in free cash flow, even after paying the dividend. If there's a settlement reached, it's usually paid out over years. So I don't think this is going to be a major threat to the overall business. Remember, Johnson & Johnson is a well-diversified business. They have the pharma business, they have the medical devices, and they have the consumer products. Right now, the stock is trading at about $140, which is about 20 times next year's earnings estimates and about 18 times this year's guess. So, or next year's guess, excuse me. So, the stock isn't cheap. But again, as a core type holding, I'd still buy half if I didn't own it because I plan on holding it for the next 20 years or more. Another healthcare type stock that I like and that I've been talking about recently has been. UNH, United Healthcare. And I won't cover it again today, other than to say that I think it's a buy around $240 and that they raised their dividend yet again last week by about 20%. They've raised their dividend by 20% a year or more for the last eight years. I think they have some pretty impressive growth opportunities. And I like that they keep raising my dividend. I'm a buyer here, I say at 240, under 252. Another defensive type investment I'd like now would be at t symbol T, paying a better than a 6% dividend, trading around eight or nine times earnings. I think that's a pretty nice risk reward scenario if you look at it. And you always need to do your own research. Don't take my word for it. You need to make sure it's appropriate for you. Okay, we're a little short of time today. We'll be back next week. And until then, remember, it's just as important to protect your assets as it is to grow. This is Eric Whiteman, This is Common Sense Investing. And this is the end of the show. Okay, you've listened to the show. Now it's time for the really good stuff. So listen up. It's the disclosures. The things I talked about during the show, well... They're just my opinion and may or may not necessarily be those of the XML Financial Group. Don't construe this as personalized advice or a solicitation to buy or sell a security. No, no. You should consult your own financial advisor to see if it's appropriate for you. It's also not a substitute for tax or legal advice. I'd suggest you get someone who's qualified in these areas so you can get the advice you deserve. When you're talking about asset allocation, diversification,